Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4. If you haven't already, that's where we will be spending our time this morning. We'll be in verse 14 through the end, through the end of, the, of the chapter. Ezekiel 17, verse 22 through 24 says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the top, topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it may, uh, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, and I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree, and I make the tree, the dry tree, flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. We've seen in Luke thus far this young and tender sprig that Ezekiel foretold um, come up before the people. Luke starts out his gospel uh, addressing it to someone named Theophilus and says that he is, his goal, Luke's goal, is to provide an orderly account of what's happened for the purpose of or so that we or Theophilus would have confidence in the things that we've been taught. And there's something about an orderly representation of the facts of history that give us as Christians confidence in what we've been taught. There are religions of the world that teach about places that don't exist and people who never existed. But in Scripture, we have accounts of historical people in historical places and Luke's point is to bring out those historical people and places to give his listeners confidence in what they've been taught. So that's our goal here this morning as well, that we would have confidence in the things that we've been taught. We've been taught thus far about Jesus' birth. It's been foretold in chapter 1. Jesus is born in chapter 2. Uh, he's brought to the temple in Jerusalem also in chapter 2 and, and blessed by Simeon who says that Jesus is appointed for the fall of and rise of many in Jerusalem. We've seen the 12-year-old Jesus at the temple asking questions of the teachers. We've seen Jesus baptized in the Jordan. We've seen him led out into the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. And now this morning in Luke 4:14, we see him full of the Spirit returning to Galilee as Jesus begins his ministry. So let's stand together. We're going to read. This is a, a 30 verses long chunk, um, so don't lock your knees. Uh, we'll read starting in verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." 
And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words, the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Isn't this, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here also in your hometown. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, a woman, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had, had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We rely on this word. We, we come to feed on this word. And we're gathered here this morning as uh, birds of various types, to borrow Ezekiel's language, and yet we gather though different, under a mighty cedar that is Christ. We come for shelter, we come for food, we come for love and acceptance and healing, we come for the riches of God. And so this morning, God, as, as, as we come for those things, may we not be disappointed, but be filled up by this word. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Jesus, the, the, the kind of topic sentence this morning, as you'll find on your bulletin, is that Jesus proclaim, uh, Jesus' proclamation of messianic authority leads to utter rejection on the one hand or joyful submission on the other. And I've entitled the message, A Tale of Two Cities, and we, we see Jesus here starting out in Nazareth, his hometown, but then ending in Capernaum. And throughout Luke thus far, we've seen the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. In verse 14, it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Jesus, as we know, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The the angel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her and overshadow her in the conception of Christ. We read of Jesus growing and becoming strong in the Spirit. We saw that the Spirit descended upon Christ as a dove during his baptism. Uh, After his baptism, he returns from the Jordan, the word says, full of the Holy Spirit, even into the desert where he's tempted by the devil, says that he was led there, he was led into the desert by the Spirit. And now we have Jesus returning in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he he doesn't act alone. The ministry of Christ is Trinitarian from day one through the, the crucifixion, resurrection, and beyond. Jesus never is alone. The Trinity is intact even in the incarnation of Christ and in his earthly ministry. Jesus basically says as much in John 12. He says, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken it on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his command... His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus does not operate alone here. The Spirit uh, specifically has been at work in him since the very beginning and is continuing to work through him now as he begins his earthly ministry here in Nazareth. It says in verse 14 that the word has spread about him throughout the surrounding country. Um, The first... Miracle of Jesus was performed where? Anyone remember? Cana, the wedding at Cana, right? So that's the first recorded miracle, which isn't recorded by Luke, but we know by this point Jesus has already done some miracles in the area, and it says that the, a report about him was going through the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Now, he's not necessarily being worshipped by all. He's popular. He's well-known. He's done some extraordinary things that people are aware of, but he's not necessarily worshipped as the Son of God that he is at this point in time. He's not recognized as the Messiah of Israel and all of mankind. He's popular, he's well known, but not necessarily worshipped yet for who he is. Jesus is now teaching in the synagogues. You remember the 12-year-old Jesus going into the synagogue and he was listening to the teachers and he was asking questions of the teachers. But now we see Jesus is going on sort of a, 
a circuit, a preaching circuit, where he visits these synagogues in different towns, and he's no longer listening and asking questions, but he's reading the word, he's preaching the word, he's teaching. And verse 16 says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, Nazareth, it says, was Jesus' hometown. But where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, right? So how is it that Nazareth is Jesus', Jesus hometown? Well, hopefully you'll remember when Jesus is born, um, you know, Herod hears that the king of the Jews has been born, and Herod's idea is to kill all the young boys so that hopefully by means of dragnet he can destroy this new king who maybe has come to threaten his power, which of course was never Jesus' intent in the first place. But Herod decides to kill all these boys. So Jesus' family takes Jesus. They all move down to Egypt. And they're in Egypt until they hear that Herod has died. So like, okay, Herod's gone. Now we can go back. They go back up to Israel. They go into Judea. But in uh, Judea, they learn <clears throat> that there is another ruler. Herod's son, Archelaus, has taken up the throne. And he is brutal as well. And so uh, Joseph decides maybe Judea is not the best place for his family and continues to move north. And they move north from Judea into Galilee and end up settling in a town called Nazareth. And that's where Jesus is brought up. So this is not the town that Jesus was born in, but it is his hometown. It's the town that he has grown up in. And Jesus goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day every week, right? The Sabbath happens weekly. He's in the temple, he's in not the temple, in the, in the synagogues, and he's teaching He's preaching the word. Synagogues, um, as far as we can tell, kind of cropped up during the Babylonian captivity in, in 598 or so uh, BC. Um, the temple had been destroyed. The temple wasn't available. So anywhere that there was a town with 10 or so Jewish families, a synagogue would pop up. And it's sort of like what we have this morning. It's a gathering of people who are committed to God, who love God, and are looking to, to learn from him. Um, there were different elements of the service, sort of similar to what we have. There's worship and prayer. They sang uh, some of the Psalms. Uh, there was scripture reading, as we see in our passage this morning, and, and also translation where it was necessary. There were people who would stand up and read that scripture, and then they would sit down to teach. And there were not usually a, a single person that was kind of over the synagogue. There would be uh, people changing in and out that would do the teaching. And on any given Sabbath, there may be five or six or seven different people who come in and read and teach and sit down. And Jesus, now being well-known throughout the area, is kind of like the, the keynote speaker or the headlining act of synagogues all around the area. Um, I'm sure news would get out somehow, hey, that Jesus guy is going to be at synagogue this Sabbath. And perhaps the room was crowded, perhaps it was wall-to-wall -wall crowded as Jesus stands up and is given the scroll of Isaiah to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, he sat down to teach, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, today, 
This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, in your hearing, the scripture has been fulfilled. And the scripture is from the first two verses of Isaiah 61. And it speaks to four groups of people. He speaks to the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. And to the poor, he says, there's good news. And to captives, he proclaims liberty. And to the blind, he proclaims sight. And to the oppressed, he proclaims liberty as well. And I imagine that the many, at least, in the synagogue are thinking, that's great, those people need some help. I saw some homeless people down by, down by the, the tracks the other day, and they could really use some good news. And Rome, Rome's come here and, and, and taken over, over the area, set up in Judea, and those, those political prisoners down in Judea, they could really use some freedom. They could use some liberty. I'm glad Jesus is here to proclaim liberty to those people. And the other day I was walking down in town and there was a blind man staggering around and, oh, Jesus, he could really use your help. I'm glad that he's here to give sight to those poor blind people. And the disenfranchised down by the docks and the depressed and the shattered, I'm glad that he's here to give them liberty. Those people really need his help. But Jesus says that today, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. This isn't for a, a different group of people. The people that he came to, to, to and was sent to and uh, whose help he is going to give in order to fulfill this, this prophecy from Isaiah isn't for people that are outside of the walls. They're not people for those who he is not standing in front of and talking to directly, Jesus is talking today in their hearing to the people among whom this prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus sees the true, desperate nature of every man, and unfortunately, every man, maybe particularly that day in Nazareth, did not see themselves in terms of those categories of poor, of oppressed, of blind, of captive. Those were other people. But Jesus sees through the exterior circumstances of their life into the true and desperate condition and need of every man and woman. Jesus sees what greater poverty than forfeiture of soul due to sin. He's preaching to a room of lost sinners, of people who need the forgiveness of God, and because of that, who are, who are impoverished. You know, Jesus said, what, is it, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? And the implication there is that Riches are, are uh, uh, money, riches, finances are lesser than spiritual poverty. The spiritual poverty is a far greater uh, blight on a person. And what greater captivity than to slavery of sin? The captives that Jesus is speaking of are not merely those who are in prison. It's not less than those who are in prison, but it's much more than that. People who are, are captive to the slavery of sin. And you can be a king, you can be a ruler and be captive and be un under the subjugation of that level of, of incarceration. Um, or what greater blindness than those of the eyes closed to the glory of God? Like, like a fish swimming in the ocean who can't see the water. Jesus said, so too you are blind. You can't see the glory of God all around you. And you can be standing, you can be vacationing in Hawaii, waking up early to see the sunrise and be blind 
to the glory of God. You can miss the purpose of the sunrise. And Jesus said, I'm coming to give sight to that kind of blindness. And what greater oppression than the feeling of hopelessness of life without meaning, without aim, without transcendent purpose, lived under the tyranny of the world systems, stuck in the rat race, trying to keep up with the Joneses, laboring for bread that perishes and food that cannot satisfy. Those who say with Solomon, vanity, vanity, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And Jesus says that kind of oppression, which is natural to mankind and natural to the world in which we live, Jesus has come to proclaim liberty and sight and good news. You could be Time Magazine's woman of the year and still crumble under the weight of the world. And so Jesus' message, while it sounds maybe on the, on the surface of it to be pointed at, at uh, sort of the dregs of society, our view of that is only based on the economy of life that we've imagined, that money is what makes things important, that physical sight is a, what allows us to see, that the freedom to get up in the morning and go wherever you want is what true freedom really means. But Jesus has a much larger vision of what it means to be alive. And in light of that vision, of that understanding of what life means, Jesus sees that everyone is poor and everyone is blind and everyone is captive and everyone is oppressed. And he's come to preach good news over that situation. Jesus comes and he says, to the poor, there are immeasurable riches in me. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what my Father has prepared for those who love me. To the captives, he said, when I set you free, you will be free indeed. To the blind, he says he's going to enlighten the eyes of their heart, and he'll no long, people will no longer see according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And to the oppressed, and this idea of oppressed in that word is, is broken in pieces or shattered, crushed, despondent, depressed. To the oppressed, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So how do they respond? This sounds like good news. Verse 22 says, and they all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus can read the crowd. They don't actually say this. Jesus says, okay, and here I can see your heart. I can see your hardness. Doubtless you will say to me these things. And everyone's thinking, he's just called himself the Messiah. He said that he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. But he's the carpenter's kid. His words are gracious enough, but, but rumors travel fast. And talk is cheap. Jesus, make with the miracles. Aren't you Joseph's son? How can these things be true? And what you did in Capernaum... Do that here as well. And Jesus gives them two examples to combat their thinking from Israel's history. Verse 24, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, 
There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. These two examples to us are probably not so offensive, but to the people in the synagogue, they were greatly offended, as, as we have seen and will see. The story from the widow of Zarephath um, comes from 1 Kings 17, and <clears throat> Elijah is on the run from the king of Israel, Ahab. Elijah is a prophet of God. He's a good guy, and the king of Israel should be a good guy, but, but isn't. He's just married Jezebel, and the word says that King Ahab did more evil than all of the other kings that came before him. So Elijah prays, and there's a drought in the land. There is uh, no rain. There's no food then, right, is what follows. And uh, Elijah is going through Zarephath, which is uh, an area kind of northeast along the sea. And he comes in contact with this widow, and the widow is out gathering sticks. And the story is that she's out gathering sticks because she says she's got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil left. She's going to go home, make a fire, feed her son their final meal, and die, she says. And Elijah says, instead of doing that, why don't you take that flour and oil and make me some food? And if you do that, you will have food throughout the rest of the famine. And the widow does it. She goes home, she makes a cake, she brings it to Elijah. Elijah eats the cake, and the flour and oil never run out for that woman throughout the remainder of, of the, the, uh, the drought. She is a widow, which is a position of low repute in this time. She's a woman, which is a, a person of, of, of low repute, low regard in this time. And she's also a foreigner. She's from Zarephath, which is in Sidon. And Sidon and Tyre is often mentioned in the New Testament, similar to how, uh, how Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned. Like, Sidon is a bad place. Uh, Sidon was a place that Israel was supposed to go in and conquer and take out, and they didn't. And because they didn't, Israel's uh, worship of Yahweh was tainted by idol worship of, of the Sidonians. So Israelites hated the Sidonians because they weren't able to drive them out of the land and because they polluted their religion. And Jesus says, guess who got God's grace? A woman, a widow, a Sidonian, an enemy. She received grace. And Naaman, Naaman was a, a, a commander of the army of Syria. Syria was one of the big bad guys in the Old Testament, Israel's enemies. Uh, Naaman has, has leprosy. And word is sent, uh, because he hears from his, his uh, slave girl, Naaman does, that there's a prophet in Israel. So word goes to the king of, of uh, the Israelites at the time, uh, Jer uh, Jehoram, and Jehoram's like, he's just trying to pick a fight with me. How am I supposed to cure someone of leprosy? People are not cured of leprosy. And then they find out, hey, there's actually, there is a prophet here. Stop tearing your clothes send him to me, Elisha says, Elisha, this is Elijah's successor. And so Naaman comes, Elisha says, go and rinse, wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman gets upset about it. He's like, the, 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 the rivers where I come from are way better than the rivers here. Why would I dip in the muddy Jordan? 
And fortunately for Naaman, his, uh, his subjects, the guys that are kind of with him in this cohort, say, hey, Naaman, like, you're going to die of leprosy. This guy said to go dip seven times. Just do it. That seems easy enough. And so they prevail upon him. Naaman goes, he dips seven times, and then he is cleansed. And there's two lessons, at least, I think, that Jesus is pulling out of this and teaching to the people that are in the synagogue. One is that faith comes first. They are asking Jesus, hey, we'll believe you, in essence, if you do for us what you did in Capernaum. Then we will believe. And Jesus says, no. The widow in Zarephath. She didn't have, Elijah didn't say, there's going to be plenty of oil, there's going to be plenty of flour for both of us, go ahead, cook yourself food, and then make me some too. He says, no, make it for me first, and then you'll have plenty. And Naaman, Naaman, Elisha doesn't just say, actually, it's funny, Naaman says, I thought he was going to come out here and wave his hand over me and heal the leper, like he's expecting this ceremony. But no, he doesn't get a ceremony, he's told, go wash seven times. And 2 Kings 5 says that as he washed, he became clean. And so the people in Nazareth are thinking that, that, that seeing is believing. Jesus is teaching them through these two stories that no, believing is seeing. You have faith first, and then you see the power of God. Secondly, God's salvation is not limited to Israel. And if the first thing didn't offend them, this certainly did. Uh, the, the, the vision, or the the, the feeling among the Israelites, the Jews in Jesus' day, were essentially, and not only in Jesus' day, far before then, but essentially that, that the Gentiles were created to fuel the flames of hell. That was the feeling towards Gentiles. And here we have two Gentile enemies of Israel receiving God's grace while the king of Israel, Ahab, is mar marrying Jezebel and committing all kinds of atrocities. And King uh, Jehoram during, during the time of Naaman and Elisha is also has a very checkered history of sometimes following the Lord and sometimes not. But the two people who do not belong in Israel, two people who are enemies of Israel, the woman and the commander of Israel's army are the ones who receive grace. God's salvation is not limited to just Israel. And in fact, oftentimes history has shown that while Israel would not have God's mercy, the Gentiles were eager to receive it. And so they respond. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And how quickly did they, did they, did they uh, sort of change their tune, right? And verse 22 says, all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. And here now they are filled with wrath because Jesus had called them poor slaves, blind, oppressed, jingoistic, um, and eager for a sign instead of being willing to trust in the authority of Christ. And so they are filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They skip the benediction in the service. They stop mid-service, they pick Jesus up, and they take him out to the brow of a hill. They're confronted with Jesus' assessment of the Gentiles that they, in spite of their belief that they were fuel for the fires of hell, Jesus says that they were worthy of grace. And the last one pushes him over the edge, this, this notion of, of Gentiles being worthy of God's grace. And the same thing as it worked today, do you believe in Jesus' assessment? You poor sinner, 
are captive, you are blind, you are oppressed, you're conquered, but he stands ready to save. But not just you. He stands ready to save, some of these examples don't work because they're dead, but Osama bin Laden, right? Joe Biden, Donald Trump, like Charles Manson, put your villain here, our God is willing and able to save that person. How does that square in your spiritual economy? How does that hit you? Yes, I think often we're, we're ready to accept forgiveness for ourselves, but the people that you think are worse than you, significantly worse than you, your enemies, God is also ready and able and willing to save. And if he did, how would that make you feel? I think about David and Uriah, right? David, King David in, in Israel, um, he rapes one of his soldier's wives, he murders that soldier, and then he marries that soldier's widow, and then he comes to see what he's done, he repents, and God calls him a man after my own heart. How does that square in your spiritual economy? It's not until we see ourselves as the chief of sinner that we are ready to receive grace from the king of kings. So Jesus moves on now. He leaves Nazareth. Uh, they get their miracle, by the way. Evidently, he passes through their midst. He leaves. <laughs> then he goes to Capernaum. Verse 31, And he went to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for the, his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So here too, Jesus again is preaching. He's teaching in the synagogue. And people are astonished at his teaching, but there's something unique about their astonishment here that maybe was missing from Nazareth. Now, the people in the Nazarenes were trying to prove Jesus' authority, and here in Capernaum, they see it played out. They say that his word possessed authority. They recognize the authority of Jesus' word, and if you're following along in, in your outline, um, Authority is that first word. They see it in three different spheres. One and the first is in his teaching. That when Jesus is teaching in the synagogues, he teaches as one by his authority, not like the scribes who reference other people who don't have an authority of their own. When Jesus comes, his word is authority. And just like in the synagogues when people would stand up to read the scripture, we do that here, right? Because we recognize there's an authority to the word of God. We believe that what the Bible has to say is the inerrant, infallible word of God. This is the word of Christ to us, and it's authoritative. So we share with the people in Capernaum this belief uh, in the authority of the word of God and the authority of Christ's teaching. And it goes beyond that. It says that there was a man in the congregation who, who had an unclean spirit, and Jesus calls the spirit out. Jesus has authority in teaching. He also has this authority that's amazing to the people observing it over the spiritual forces in the room. Jesus has authority over the spiritual world, and they're amazed by it. And it says that the word, the word goes out, 
reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. From there, after the service, presumably, he goes and he leaves the synagogue and enters Simon's house. This is Simon Peter. Enters Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law has a high fever, and he rebukes the fever, and it leaves her. So Jesus has authority in teaching. He has authority over truth. Jesus has authority over spiritual forces. And Jesus here has authority over physical forces, something like like a fever. And I think it's amazing that the language that Luke uses here, that Jesus rebuked the fever, like to rebuke a person makes sense, to rebuke a demon makes sense, but a fever has no, no cognition. A fever is not, is not a personal force. It's like Jesus uh, on the Sea of Galilee later rebuking the waves. Like a wave is just a high point of water. There's nothing, there's nothing spiritual behind that. There's nothing spiritual necessarily behind this fever. But Jesus is able, because of his great authority, not only over spiritual matters, but over physical matters as well, to rebuke this fever. It says that the fever left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Jesus has authority over the physical world as well. And now this was Sabbath, so people, there were a lot of extra rules on people during the Sabbath of what they could and could not do, and travel was one of them. So now that the sun was setting, in, in the Jewish way of thinking about things, the, the, the Sabbath actually ended once the sun went down. So as soon as the sun goes down above the, below the horizon, people were able to get up and travel. And all day long, through the coconut phones or whatever, people have been figuring out that Jesus is in town and he's healing people. This morning in, in synagogue, he cast out a demon and then he went over to, to his friend Peter's house and cast out uh, this, this fever from her. Maybe there's hope for us too. So as soon as that sun gets down below the horizon line, people uh, set out. It says, those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Jesus is nearly stopped here also uh, in, in Capernaum like he was in Nazareth. In Nazareth, they tried to stop him by killing him. Here in Capernaum, they come out and they're like, Jesus, stay here. How cool would it be to have a town where no one is sick, where no one is blind, where no one is poor, Maybe Jesus read the same passage from Isaiah 61 in, in, that, in that synagogue. We don't know. But people come to try to stop him, stay with us. And Jesus' answer is, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Our response to the authority of Jesus means everything. And authority, authority in our, our day is a kind of a bad word, right? Submission and authority have become nasty words in our, in our society. Our fierce independence belies our frailty. We think that we have it all together and, and are in control of our everything, but our sickness, our inconsistencies, uh, our failed marriages, our wayward children are all evidence that, that we don't have it all together and that we ought to be submitting. We suffer a society racked with pain and loneliness as a result. And if we are to enjoy the kingdom that Jesus preaches, we must be submitted to the authority of its king. 
Marveling at his gracious words is not enough, nor is being amazed by his teaching or even amazed by his authority. We must come under that authority, be altered by his teaching, and be healed by the grace that he gives. So I think our implications this morning for, for the Christian is to worship, to remember that you were poor, not just financially poor, like financially poor comes and goes and one day you die and it doesn't matter anyways, you can't take anything with you. Jesus is talking about a much more significant poverty. And we who are in Christ were poor. We were destitute. We were without hope. We were blind. We couldn't see Christ. We couldn't see the goodness of God all around us. We were oppressed, living under a world system that promises the moon and delivers next to nothing Monday through Friday. But we've been saved from that. We've been given spiritual eyes. God's shown us the truth and shared with us the reality of the universe that we live in, where he is at the center when we are not at the center, but where he loves us and cares for us and gives us good things and has promised an eternity with him in heaven. And we need to remember that as Christians. Sometimes it's easy to get discouraged about whether it's political situations or financial situations. I don't want, you know, don't want to downplay the burden that financial hardships are or the burden that a physical blindness or any other physical ailment would be. Jesus came not to ignore those things. He's, he's taking care of those things. He's just expanded it even beyond that, but it's not less than those things. And we ought to remember that. We should remember the good news of the gospel and allow that to stir us to thanksgiving and to worship. I wanted to, as I was studying for this, I read this in um, what's his name? R. Kent Hughes' commentary. I wanted to share it with you. I thought it was great. It says, A large, prestigious British church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of each new year, all the members of the mission churches would come to the parent church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches located in the slums of a major city were some outstanding cases of conversions, thieves, burglars, and others. But all knelt as brothers and sisters side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail when he had served, where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had become converted and became a Christian worker. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, do you notice who is kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The two walked along in silence for a few moments, and then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement, a marvelous miracle indeed. The judge then inquired, but to whom do you refer? Well, the, the, former convict, the, pa- the former convict, the pastor answered. The judge said, I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The minister, surprised, replied, you were thinking of yourself? I, I don't understand. You see, the judge went on, it's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he understood Jesus could be his savior, he knew that there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers and go to church and take communion and so on. 
I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees, I was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be. Though in fact, I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I am the greater miracle. And I think we should stop and, and look around and, and think about the room that we're in. Like, I know that there's a variation to which this is true, but essentially we are a room full of rich people. Full of rich people. Most of us are rich with family, rich with friends. We have food in our pantries. We have clothes in our, in our closets. We have houses that we're going to go to home to after this service. We have cars that are sitting out in the parking lot. Most of our dogs drink cleaner water than most of the people, not most of the people, many of the people in the world. We are rich. And Jesus said that it is easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than it is to save rich people like me and you. And yet here we are. Here we are, praise God, miracles of God's grace that any of us care a lick to be here this morning because our lives are so comfortable. But God has seen fit to give us a discomfort in our soul that sees ourselves as poor, as blind, as oppressed, as slaves, as captives, and he's given us the faith to come to his son Christ for healing. And that should, that should stir us to worship, that should change the way that we live our lives. Think about Simon Peter's mother-in-law when she's healed. Her first reaction when she's healed is to get up and to start serving the people that are around her. I think that ought to be our, our reaction as well when we see what we've been healed from, when we see the goodness of God's gospel in our lives, our reaction to our healing ought to be to stand up and start serving the people that are around us. If you don't know Christ, his evaluation of us is, is difficult to hear, but necessary. It's like the, like the surgeon's knife. His evaluation is that you are poor and captive and blind and oppressed. So the question is, who do you say that you are? He's given us good news, the offer of forgiveness and life in him. And the question then is also, who do you think he is? Is he Joseph's son? Is he the carpenter's boy? Or is he who he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God? It won't do to merely marvel at his gracious words. It won't do to merely be amazed by his authority. As I've said, we must come under that authority. Jesus is not just another good teacher who claims to be God. You know, to, to borrow C.S. Lewis's is, uh, uh, thought on this, it's like he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's the Lord. You can't say that he's good because he's claiming to be God. It's like someone claiming to be a poached egg, I think is what C.S. Lewis said. It doesn't make sense. And there's no record here. I think this is interesting. There, after, after Jesus is led up and tried to be stoned by throwing him off this cliff, there's no record in the Gospels of Jesus ever returning to Nazareth. And sometimes rejections are final, and sometimes there isn't a second chance, and sometimes there isn't a third or a fourth chance. Today, as Jesus says, is the day of salvation. This is the year of the Lord's favor. 
Jesus actually stops halfway through verse 2 in Isaiah 61 when he's reading to the congregation. The rest of the verse, so he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The rest of the verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus wasn't coming to proclaim the day of, the, of vengeance of God. He came to proclaim forgiveness of sins, but he's coming again, and you'll either meet him in death or you'll meet him upon his return, and he will be there to proclaim the vengeance of God. But this is the year of the Lord's favor, so seek him now while he may be found. His patience does have an end, but today is the year of his favor. For thus says the Lord God, this is Ezekiel 34, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into a land of their own. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed. On the mountains of Israel, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will, I will feed them in justice. 